Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Lives We Tell Ourselves. The talk was given by Carl Crummins on January 21st, 2023, via Zoom. Carl has been a spiritual practitioner for over 40 years. He lived in India for seven years and has a passion for considering the essential similarities of spiritual traditions. In this talk, he refers to the work of developing attention in the Gurdjieff system, which has been written about by Red Hawk in books about self-observation and self-remembering. Carl likens the statement he discusses to a koan, which in Zen practice cannot be figured out with a rational mind. He speaks about draw-no-conclusions mind, an approach of reminding ourselves that we can take an experience as it is without interpreting and giving it subjective meaning. He also mentions Ramana Maharshi's teaching of inquiring Who am I? In opening to our true identity. Early in the talk, Carl plays the YouTube video, Test Your Awareness, to illustrate how we are unaware of many elements in our environment, since our attention is selective and not diffuse. Those who attended the talk watched the scene created by actors, which involved a detective interviewing three murder suspects, with a camera providing a view of the entire room at the beginning and end, and close-ups of the suspects in the room during the video. Then the same scene is shown again, filmed from the vantage point of a second camera, which takes in the whole room throughout. We see that many changes had been made to the room's decor, and even to some of the actors' costumes during the video, but that we had not noticed them at all at the end of the scene, since our attention had been selectively focused on the interactions filmed by the first camera. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Call Crummins. Thank you, everyone, for coming to this. I'll read what I wrote. An important and even crucial part of the spiritual path is self-honesty, which should lead to self-knowledge. And of course, everyone wants to be and believes they are honest. This is the first and biggest lie we tell ourselves. Without clearly seeing this, that we are born liars, we are kidding ourselves and will just spin our wheels. And the quote was, self-deception can be more comforting than self-knowledge. We like to fool ourselves, Russ Roberts. Another quote that I like, if you don't know yourself, how do you expect to recognize yourself when you find yourself? E.J. Gold. So, a number of years ago, I read a book called Born Liars. The content of it was just amazing to me that we are born liars. It's not just a human thing. Animals deceive also. A monkey that has a piece of fruit, when he sees some other monkeys come along, will look alarmingly in a certain direction. So it's distracting the other monkeys from what he's doing, which is hiding the piece of fruit that he has. So this is 
part of who we are and what we're born into. Actually, the only people who don't lie to themselves are little children. But that doesn't last, does it? Something happens to us. We learn that you'll be better off getting what you want through other means than being honest. When I think of it, nobody believes that they lie. So I'm not talking about lies in the sense that we understand them, which is intentional, untrue statements for personal profit. So I'm not talking about those, or at least intentionally for personal profit, though there are other forms of subtle personal profit, perhaps. So for myself, I wanted to bear down on my own little invisible self-deceptions. This is more along the lines of where I'm focusing with this. Anyway, that's what I wanted to do for myself. And it's been interesting doing this because once you choose a subject like this, it's your focus. It's a background focus, which it's been for me for weeks, trying to catch myself. Because the thing is with self-deception, it's successful because it's been there. It's trained. You've trained it habitually. It's invisible to ourselves. So how do we make something that's been ongoing and invisible to ourselves visible? That's a trick. That's a lot of what goes on in the work. And really, I think of the term lies. I'm not talking about, again, the big lies. Actually, in a way, if you know that you're lying, you're not lying to yourself. You're just lying to someone else. And that is what it is. But when you don't know that you're lying, that's a problem because then that's self-deception. You don't want that. You want to know when you're not lying. But being that I'm not talking about those big lies, I'm talking about all the little ones, the gray lies, the white lies, not just the big black lies. So there are lies of commission and lies of omission, leaving stuff out or withholds and paltering. That's a third category of lying that I'll get to later which involves lying by telling the truth. Doing this, I'm assuming that I'm blind to my self-deception, so how do I go about seeing them? Maybe I don't want to see them. Why even bother if I don't want to see them? And a quote here, the greatest self-deception men suffer from is their own opinions. So that's another type of lie. We form opinions, and I'll return to those in more detail later. And I have this highlighted. The source of continued lying is that we believe we're honest people. The end of lying may have a chance once I admit that I'm still lying to others and myself. We don't want to go there because essentially there's nobody here who makes a living from deception. There's no larcenous people. We're all really doing the best we can. We all have the same value that honesty and self honesty is important. So I'm not talking about those bigger things. It's more subtle than that. And in terms of why we're this way, they're the lies that our parents tell us, lies that society tells us, the lies we tell others and the ones we tell ourselves. Here's a quote, food, clothing, and shelter. These are the basic needs. Beyond that, if you want anything, it is the beginning of self-deception. That's a quote by U.G. Krishnamurti. The difference between a want and a need, that's a whole area to explore. And around lying, something that I found is that our perceptions, our ability to perceive is very uneven, I'll say. 
a lot of lying occurs because perception is limited. Perception is a deception. If you ever played the game as a child, telephone, and somebody whispers something in somebody's ear, and you go around, by the time it comes around through 10 people, it's a very different statement than the statement you said. Well, that's something like what's going on with perceptions. In the book, Born Liars, one thing that got this guy going was that he and his wife were driving to work in Boston, and they were in their car, and his wife is a lawyer, and he's a neuroscience researcher. They witnessed a mugging going on in the street, and they reported it and went to the police. And he noticed that his presentation of it was so different than his wife's that he went, wow, what's going on here? And he started creating experiments and doing research in neuroscience. And a lot of people have done this. A lot of it is matters of perception. This is a biological phenomenon. We can't register all the things that we're seeing at one time. We selectively pick things that have survival value for us. Human beings, our perception has been honed to select what's going on to us that has survival value. That is money, food, and sex, power, reproduction, and survival. And that which doesn't enhance that, our perception has been trained not to register this. We're only looking for things that are payoffs, mostly, unless you train your attention, which is what we're all about doing in the work. Freeing ourselves from our conditioning, from money, food, and sex, from survival concerns, to having diffuse attention rather than selective attention that, that's magnetized by phenomena. Can you play that first YouTube? Pay attention to this and see what you see here. Okay. Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. But, but how did you know? Madam, as any horticulturist will tell you, one does not plant petunias until May is out. Take her away. It's just a matter of observation. The real question is how observant were you? Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. But I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest... That was an example of perceptions. One that I looked at that's pretty famous is the invisible gorilla. There's people passing a basketball and you're asked to count the number of passes and something dramatic happens during that time and a lot of people don't notice it because their attention is focused on the basketball passes. Anyway, you can Google invisible gorilla and check that out.
the point of that is, is that perception is pretty squirrely and has limitations so that we are being deceived in a manner of speaking by our conditioning in the forms of selective perception that we've been conditioned into. In writing this up, I was wondering if I hadn't bitten off more than I can chew. You have lies or deceptions going on in spousal relationships, in business, in friendships, in medicine, in science, in school, in crime, in sports, in history, the news, and of course, politics, which is out now bullface lying. And there's a book that I ran across that I really liked. It's called Radical Honesty. And the proposition there is tell the truth no matter what, not even any white lies. And I didn't agree with the person because I really believe in white lies. <laughs> white lies, there was an example in the book, Born Liars. Some religious groups say no lies at all, no white lies. And it was an example that I don't know how they found this of. Nazis coming to somebody's house, a woman's house, during that time, and the woman had a Jewish girlfriend in the house, and the Nazis asked her, do you know any Jews or harboring any Jews here? And she belonged to some Christian group that you always tell the truth, and she said, yes, this woman's a Christian. So they hauled both of them off. So white lies, you need to use common sense. And I've been noticing my white lies Probably my biggest one is forms of avoiding relationship. But an example from the movie, The Invention of Lying, is about a world where nobody can lie. Somebody shows somebody their baby, and the woman says, oh, my God, that thing looks hideous. It looks like a rat. So we learn to say, oh, that's so cute. There's all manner of these kinds of useful white lies. And I've really been reading a lot on the pros and cons of white lies, but it goes from white lies into gray lies, where you're doing it unconsciously and maybe serving some unconscious agendas. Oh, this is a useful thing. This is like a paren in my talk. Look for the kernel of truth, because often somebody's going on about something, and a lot of what they're saying is not accurate or out of anger and difficult to hear and all manner of things, but there's often a kernel of truth. So some of this is about learning to do deep listening, listening behind the words of what somebody's saying. And it's like a parent to this story of lying, but the flip side of lying is being truthful. What is truth? We'll get to that. So some types of lying, denial, exaggeration, minimization, the little white lie, the bold-faced lie, restructuring, restructuring, which is endemic in courtroom dramas and partisan news. It involves distorting the context, saying something sarcastically, changing who said what or why and with what intent, or altering the scene to create a narrative you want. That's the news. And there's instrumental lying, which is to avoid punishment or to protect resources. Relational lying or relational white lies, maybe, to maintain relationships or bonds, to keep our friendships. We all are semi-consciously, unconsciously, or consciously aware of how much we can say to our friends and what we can't say after a while to friends because it's going to complicate things and we value our friendships. So, hey, don't go there. 
that that's a kind of deception. I think these things are okay when you know you're doing them, but when you're doing it mechanically and unconsciously, and it just becomes a lifestyle. Identity to preserve face or self-image. Now that's one that you really want to track. This stuff, it's like a training of attention to sensitize yourself, to hear what you're saying from a third-person perspective so that you can detect these things. Because otherwise, you're just one of the frames in the film going on in front of you. How to step back and realize that you're watching a film rather than being a frame in the film. That's part of the bigger picture of this. More kinds of lies here. Making up information, giving information that is the opposite of very different from a truth. And that's intentional for personal profit. Equivocation, making indirect, ambiguous, or contradictory statements. That's more of a judicial form of lying. Concealment, omitting information that is important or relevant to the given context, or engaging in a behavior that helps hide relevant information. Concealment. I don't want to get into certain complicated conversations because it's just going to take up time. So I see something coming along and I just delete it before it shows up. So I don't need to explain things. That's kind of a white gray line. I don't know. These things aren't black and white. Maybe everything is its own incident and you have to be detached. Exaggerations, overstatements, or stretching the truth to a degree. I think that's pandemic. When we're trying to make a point, we tend to put a thumb on our mental vocabulary, on the scale of that, and word things in a way that furthers our point, that furthers our particular agenda. Exaggeration. Understatements, minimizing or downplaying aspects of the truth. Again, that's when we're trying to win an argument, make a point. Untruths. That's obvious rationalizations. Comparisons. Comparison is like a kind of innate, intrinsic lie because there is no such thing as apples and apples. Now, that's something you need to figure out for yourself. But often we compare ourselves, or I compare myself to other people, to maybe famous and great people, or just people who look to me like they've accomplished more in their lives. And I go, oh, look at me, what have I done with my life? Comparison. And that's an unconscious thing that we do, but it's a form of lying because everything is unique. Every life is unique. Everything is special. And so comparisons are always going to be innately false. And tracking those for yourself, catching yourself when you compare yourself or anyone to anyone else. So this is a lot of information I'm presenting here. Some of this will stick, some of it don't. What sticks, use. And then there's confabulation. That's kind of almost a medical term that means filling in gaps of memory by fabrication. And there have been some famous political things. I think Hillary Clinton claimed to have flown to some African nation where there was sniper fire. And it never happened. And she made some statement that she did this and got called and she never went there. And this was some big thing that was used against her during her campaign. And that was a form of confabulation. She was sincerely believing this thing happened. So often people invent fictitious memories 
when you don't really remember something and there's something at stake. Something that strikes me is that it's hard to learn to say, I don't know, especially I think for men more so than women, but I'm not sure. I'm not a woman. But I found for my type, saying I don't know is a humiliating, shameful thing <laughs> that I've had to track and make some peace with. And it's actually really handy because it can cut off a lot of conversations that aren't going to go anywhere anyway. So saying I don't know. And then there's paltering, which I mentioned earlier, which is the active use of selective truthful statements to mislead. And that's a kind of complex form of lying. Again, it's probably mostly used in courtrooms. These are all things that go on. And here I have a quote. If you don't confront a liar, and if you let it slide unchallenged, in a very real sense, you've become a liar yourself. Is that true, really? Are you complicit in a lie if you recognize it and don't call it? A lot of these things fall into gray areas that there may be times where it's not productive to call, to challenge a statement. But it's something to think about. Here's something interesting. Neurologically and culturally, most of us usually default to our fears. Since starting this little project of becoming more sensitive to lies, I notice how much low-grade fear, low-grade anxiety goes on in my life and what's that about and how uncomfortable it is to really step back and go, what's going on here? So this thing about fears, we make up stories because of fears. And this gets to the unknown The human mind is a problem-solving machine. It doesn't like mystery. It doesn't like things that are unanswerable, that can't be answered. It works to answer things. And it goes into overtime in many sectors when there's not a practical problem to answer. It will start producing unreal problems so that it has unreal problems to solve because the mind is a problem-solving machine and it does not like mystery. That's why we like mystery movies and all of that. We're so engaged by that. This led me in my thinking into the realm of belief systems. There's a whole form of lying there, belief systems. I noticed a long time ago that when I use the word belief or when I use the word I think Those two terms implicitly mean I don't know. I don't say I don't know. I say, I believe that the world is round. And I caught myself in that a long time ago because I heard of the flat worlders. And I went, well, the world is round. I said, well, how do you know, Carl? I started thinking about it. I went, I didn't know. I'm taking somebody else's word for it. I'm going along with consensus reality that the world is round. And so after that, I spent quite a long time trying to figure out for myself how the world is round, flying in a jet plane 30,000 feet over the air, go to the window and see if you can see some curve, but the windows are so thick that they're distorting. So that wasn't it. I read things about it. And eventually I figured out that gravity makes mass become a circle because every mass has gravity. And that's one proof, but there's other proofs. There's people who believe that the world isn't round, that it's flat. 
So it's another form of how we deceive ourselves and our belief systems. So those are all over the map. But what's useful is you can think about your own reincarnation. Do you believe it? Do you know it for yourself? I don't know. It could be useful to list these things for yourself. And it's an integral part of us. If you don't have any beliefs, how are you living? Life would be very mysterious, would be the best way to put it, but insecure. We don't like ambiguity. We like things to be clear, at least for ourselves. We are willing to believe almost anything that comforts us. So what beliefs do you have that are comforting? And what would it be like to reword that into an unknown? So as I said before, we're story-making creatures, and these stories can turn into confabulations. Confabulation is actually more of a medical term for people who have various forms of brain dysfunctions when they can't explain, like Alzheimer's is an extreme case of it. They just make up something. What we're doing in a manner of speaking, I can look at myself and go, I make up stories for myself. And it's not dramatic enough that I'm institutionalized or need medical help, but I make up stories. I'm always making up theories as to why the world looks the way it is and why people do and say what they do. The thing is, as story-making beings, stories are good things, and it's a power. And we can make up stories that assist us in living. We can make up stories that make life beautiful. So... Part of this world of make-believe is own it and be creative in it. That's a part of where this can go. So there are genuine mysteries in the world that mark the limits of human knowing and thinking. Wisdom is fortified, not destroyed, by understanding its limitations. Ignorance does not make a fool as surely as self-deception. Mortimer Adler. Yeah. When I've thought of it deeply, I've thought that most of life is really a mystery in truth. And to be willing to live in that level of uncertainty can produce anxiety until you make some sort of other form of peace with yourself or with the world. Belief in compliments and dismissals. We like compliments. If somebody compliments us, we're eager to go, yes. Yes, you're right. That's true. I do have good taste in clothing, which is absurd in my case. We believe in compliments. And when somebody disses us, our feelings may be hurt. And compliments and disses, the valuations, they're both the same. They say more about the other person than they do about you or me. Pay attention. That's a really practical thing because we're influenced while we say to one another, like somebody says to me, you're a bad speller, and my feelings are hurt. I'm being facetious. I'm an atrocious speller, and that has been quite obvious to me and to many other people. But anyway, somebody could say something like that. And if you haven't really gotten for yourself that anything that anybody says about you that's negative, why are they saying it? What's the motivation? And equally positive things. We all like strokes and they're useful, but to believe in it is a form of slavery. It's giving away our autonomy, our power to believe in a compliment or to believe in a dismissal. 
But at the same time, there's probably a kernel of truth somewhere in it. But to believe the whole thing, to just feel complimented or have your feelings hurt, that's not useful for you. It's an unconscious form of disempowerment. Here's a quote. Never have I greater reason for suspicion than when I am particularly pleased with myself, my faith, my progress, and my alms. Christian Shriver, some historical person. So take that as you will. Uh, I should have said this a while ago. I'm not really talking about lies. I'm talking about kidding ourselves. We're kidding ourselves. That's a nicer, softer way. Maybe that's a lie. We're lying to ourselves. Kidding ourselves is more like what we do than actual lying to ourselves. But where is the line between kidding ourselves and bold-faced lying? Some teachers say, if it's not in your experience, it's not true for you. If you don't know it as part of your experience, it's a belief. Now, that's interesting to track that. And where it's important to do that is any evaluative statements about ourselves or anybody else. Because evaluative statements are most instamatic shots of a moment in time. And we're a process. We're not the static thing. Our life is a process. We're constantly changing through it. Our understandings are changing. Everything is changing all the time. So any evaluative statement at best is going to be momentarily accurate. The world that we see outside is a process thing that's in our brain. We're not actually perceiving what's outside of our brains. I don't know that I know enough neuroscience to be able to state it properly, but it's a reproduction. It's a mental reproduction of the world. And given that we can only process so much as like thousands of things to be aware of, and like that little video showed, we can only pay attention to a few of them. And those few that are registering for us out of our conditioning are what we consider reality. But as we know, we only see a tiny fragment of the vibratory spectrum, the visual one and the auditory one. So there's all sorts of phenomena going on that we can't see. Lots of animals perceive areas in the spectrum that we don't. So we're filtering reality all the time. Who knows how extensive that filtering process is. But to recognize that, a lot of this, I think its main use is just to loosen up our idea that we've got a handle on reality, we know what's going on, and to hold our view of things lightly instead of with a death grip that this is the truth. To just go, yeah, this is what it looks like to me now. This is the best I can do with the information I got for the time being. I know it's not complete, but we're all doing the best we can. Here's another interesting statement. All violence is a result of, maybe violence is an extreme word, All violence is the result of people tricking themselves into believing that their pain derives from other people and that consequently those people deserve to be punished. That's a quote from Marshall Rosenberg. And you can make that a little less extreme. I'd say something like, that fence you got over there, that's not really going to hold anything in or out. And they go, you made me feel sad that you criticized my fence. You made me feel. It's a strange statement. How could I make anybody feel anything? We report 
some partial understanding of our own. But when somebody says, you made me feel, I track that one. That's giving power, that's giving our autonomy away to someone else when we say, you made me feel. And I've been thinking a lot about that one for this talk and tracking myself. I realize that people say things that hurt my feelings. And I go, whoa, your feelings are hurt. And somehow I have abbreviated that into, okay, no problem, and go on. And I don't make up a story about that. It dissolves right away. But I think the problem isn't what we feel. It's good to know what you're feeling and acknowledge it. Because if you don't, things get worse. One of my favorite quotes, if you don't own your feelings, they go into the cellar and start lifting weights. So it's important to feel your feelings. The thing is what story, if any story, you make up about it. So don't get into the negative story-making thing. And maybe to go, whoa, that was an interesting feeling. Let me get back to that at some other time. Especially owning grief is useful. So use of language, paying attention to our language. I may say, I want to start paying attention to what I say. And the first day, I don't remember a single thing. I didn't do it once. And maybe the next day I do it once. And over time, I have found out that when I start trying to do something, the beginning, it starts out very sketchy, hardly happening at all. But over a period of time, the frequency increases. You have to trust that changing habits. It happens with maintaining intention for it every day and not getting discouraged of saying, I'm going to continue to follow through on this. Carl Sagan, one of my favorite characters, Carl Sagan's BS detection kit includes this test. If a theory cannot be disproven, if it is not possible to devise a test for it, then it should not be believed. Hmm. If a theory cannot be disproven, then it should not be believed. That's like a koan. I'll leave that be. In science, lack of evidence is not evidence of lack, which in scientific circles is a meaningful statement because things can be going on that you can't measure. That doesn't mean they're not happening. Here's some quotes. People who believe that they are strong-willed and the masters of their destiny can only continue to believe this by becoming specialists in self-deception. James Baldwin. I think that most of us here, most people who are on the spiritual path have had some sobering moments where they reflected that. One of the most common beliefs is the belief that we have free will. That's an interesting one because a lot of scientists believe that we have no free will. And yet, as far as we can tell, and as far as our senses go, obviously we have free will. Look, I'm going to raise my right hand there. There's proof that I have free will. Would I be raising my right hand if I weren't trying to prove that I had free will? With this, is the Buddhist term interdependent origination? Do the thought experiment. Try and isolate anything, any act. And sometime when you're driving somewhere, try and isolate any act. Everything is connected to everything is my experience when I've tried that, which is a thing to swallow. That has to do with our idea of free will, that I'm the master of my fate. Some evolutionary biologists 
Robert Sulpowski, there's a lot of YouTubes out, was chronicling what happened to your mother? What happened to your mother when you were in the womb? Did your mother have any addictions? How was her pregnancy? These all create certain body chemistries, your childhoods, any traumas, where you were raised, your diet, your genetics. He listed myriad things that impact how we are. He's one of the ones who said, given what I know of all the things that impact us, there is no free will. The cause of any one thing is everything else. The thing is, if you believe what I'm saying, I've not done a good job. So don't believe that and see if you can figure out how to test that for yourself in a thought experiment. Try and isolate anything. But that's a really hard thing. I did it for myself. Even then, we're not not responsible. This thing of not having free will could slide into, oh, well, I'm not responsible for what I'm doing and live, love, and be merry. We do have free will once we realize we don't have free will. That's the beginning of free will, is a koan. That's a paradox. That's a really important one. The beginning of having choice and free will is a recognition that you don't have it because then you start investigating and things start to change. Roles are roles. People are in bad faith when they deceive themselves into thinking they aren't ultimately free and responsible for their actions. There's a contradiction to it right away. Making excuses for what one does, inaccurately labeling oneself, inventing a role in order to hide behind it. Wow, inventing a role. These are all ways of being in bad faith. Relationships between people who are in bad faith are bound to fail. Relationships with people who are authentic, however, can succeed. Authentic, that is such a catch term. Being authentic, it is so hard. Who am I? Ramana's quote, who am I? This being authentic is no small thing. In my case, who is hiding behind the car roll? This leads us into the big lie that we are separate independent entities that we are autonomous, separate, independent entities. That is the big lie, that we're separate. We're doing our own thing. An autonomous part of this whole big pizza pie that we're living in. So a great remedy for all this is draw no conclusions mind. Easier said than done. Like I try and make that my North Star. Draw no conclusions mind. But it's hard to live in not knowing and never being certain. I can be certain, obvious, clear, physical things. But there's a lot of things, really. And especially drawing a conclusions mind around other people. That's where it's really of practical use. Comments, questions? I've been thinking how to apply this. I get that this happens, that we're doing this pretty constantly in our own unique ways. And also, it doesn't seem that we can know ourselves if we're self-deceiving. So how can I see more clearly how I'm self-deceiving and what to do with that? Well, some of my intention was to show that there is a lot more self-deception or kidding ourselves. Self-deception is a judgmental, punitive term, but that we're kidding ourselves a lot. 
And the beginning of this is to go, yeah, okay, I'm kidding myself and sensitize ourselves. And I think just to remember, draw no conclusions mine, because we are so addicted to nailing it down. So most of this is just to create doubt, show all the loose threads, the limitations of perception, the belief systems that we've inherited from our parents, from religions, from our culture, from our teachers. For me, it's more of an experiential thing in terms of making efforts at self-observation. If I sense that something is off, to question myself about it, why am I feeling uncomfortable about something? What's going on for me? That's good, but I don't think that's enough because it's the stuff where we automatically produce something and we don't have the feeling that something is off. When you don't know that something's going on for you, things are airtight. You don't have a clue that you're kidding yourself. If we argue a point really strongly, to me, if I have a really strong emotional reaction to something, that's a clue. That's a great red flag. Yeah, that's for you. What's going on here? But I'm saying all the time. Most of the time, we really believe our feelings. Feelings as sensations in the body is different than an emotion, which is when a story gets told and creates a feedback loop. Feelings are hurt. You say, that person's an asshole. And then you get angry. That's another feeling. But the original feeling was the hurt feeling. The feeling is authentic. I feel hurt. Why do I feel hurt? Because I have a self-description that that comment invalidated this little part of my story about myself. Somebody calls me a liar, but I'm not a liar. I'm truthful. It's really interesting how we do this because I think that emotions that are really too difficult to be with, we cover over pretty quickly. Yes. And in fact, we have suppressed those, goes way back to childhood, undoubtedly, to the point that they're repressed and we don't even have that emotion so much. We jump right to the defensive reaction. The stories. The stories. And to me, that's the way that we kid ourselves when we don't even really know that that process is going on. I see that underlying this, what we're doing is through all the practices that we do, developing a refined form of awareness. All this stuff is content I'm giving, information. But part of this is the stuff Red Hawk talks about, which is being in your body, feeling sensations in your body, grounding your attention in what's real. As part of that, I think it's also a process of developing a strong enough matrix to be able to hold those sensations. Because sometimes they're overwhelming and pretty reactive and just to be with the feeling rather than to cover it over. When you say a strong enough matrix, I would restate that as a healthy ego. And that's a complex thing because not a lot of people have really healthy egos. So we don't have healthy egos. So this is where we start. Awareness training, I think, is core. Self-observation and self-remembering. The ability to be sensing the sensations of your body and developing the witness function. It's a strengthening of attention because normally, as I said before, we're in the film. There's a film going on and we're in the film. We don't realize that we can be watching the film. 
And that's not where it ends, but that's a beginning of developing a witness function that notices these things instead of the whole day happening to us. Life happens to us by and large, but can you step back and a certain level of time in on the job to develop heightened attention, sensitized attention, awareness, sensitized awareness. It's like a muscle. It's like our attention is scattered all over the place, beginning to notice the scattering of it and pulling the scattered pieces. When I walk along the street and my attention is snatched, noticing that and returning my attention, observing what you're paying attention to, loosening our fixated attention on all the things our attention fixates on. This takes time. Pay attention and remember. Yeah, I think about this self-deception and lying situation, and I think about how it's important to understand that we're all on different levels in our work, in our lives, in our understanding, in our awareness. And that's where compassion comes in, because I may be having a conflict with someone and they may not have the capacity in the moment to meet me in an honest place relative to the sharing of deeper feelings and vulnerabilities. And also vice versa, I may not have the capacity in the moment to meet someone else honestly. True honesty is at the core of my being. And a lot of times I'll have to basically stay in a situation of discomfort or angst long enough to where I'm really willing to do the work. And sometimes it takes a long time to get there. For me, I see it's a capacity issue. I don't sometimes have the capacity to meet someone. I have an inkling. I know that I can stop blaming someone in a moment, but inside myself internally in my emotions, I'm still wanting to push that towards them instead of take ownership for my own experience. So it's a very complex thing we're discussing here tonight. It's very deep and complex and really all pervasive. So I have to really have a lot of compassion for myself and for other people and where we find each other. Yes, We need compassion, I think, especially for ourselves. It's easier in a way to have compassion for another person, I found, than to have compassion for myself. I'm my own harshest judge. I don't think anybody does to me what I do to myself or did to myself. Thank you. I don't like the word levels that you said, but we're all in a different place. Levels tends to go up and down and better and worse. The mechanical brain defaults into Yes, no, good, bad, right, wrong, and things are not like that. That's a shortcut to prevent real thinking about things. In the Gurdjieff work, the brain goes good, bad, like, dislike. I like, I don't like this. And to move past that like, dislike world. What are you saying is the better vernacular for what I was expressing? In other words, how to stay outside of that good, bad stuff? How would you view it then? It's not seeing it in terms of good, bad. It's all part of our process. We tend to think of ourselves as a noun rather than a verb. And we're always morphing into the next moment. I like what you said. You were honest. You said sometimes I just don't have 
what it takes to meet certain things. To go, yes, sometimes there's too much on my plate. There's no room for anything else. To recognize that and say, I'm sorry, I just can't hear this at this time. That would be a great kind of honesty to be able to have a clear sense of your own limits and boundaries and to articulate that without judgment. Yeah, this is just where I'm at now. Let's try this another time. I can't do this now. And not to judge yourself for it either. Self-judgment short circuits any possibility of learning anything, if anything, going anywhere. And that's that whole thing, judgment. I do something dumb, fine. It's now something in the past, and that's in the past, and now is a new moment with new possibilities. And why go back to the past and go, oh, look at you, did something stupid. Stay in the present and try and meet the present with as much attention as you can put into it, as much attention as you have available to give. Attention is really a big thing, refining our attention, strengthening our attention ability. Yeah, I'm guessing that the refinement of our attention will automatically create greater self-honesty. So we don't have to go, let me catch my lies. We just need to strengthen and refine our ability to pay attention to stay in the moment. And that will handle this in a more direct way without the evaluations of, am I telling the truth or am I lying? Just pay attention and remember. And I really like draw no conclusions mind. That's my North Star.